scripture for tonight is 1 Corinthians 14, but we're going to be uh, reading it from the message. So if you just want to listen or if you have the message, follow along. Go after a life of love as if your life depended on it, because it does. Give yourselves to the gifts God gives you. Most of all, try to proclaim his truth. If you praise him in the private language of tongues, God understands you, but no one else does. For you are sharing intimacies just between you and him. But when you proclaim his truth in everyday speech, you're letting others in on the truth so that they can grow and be strong and experience his presence with you. The one who prays using a private prayer language certainly gets a lot out of it. But proclaiming God's truth to the church in its common language brings the whole church into growth and strength. I want all of you to develop intimacies with God in prayer. But please don't stop with that. Go on and proclaim his clear truth to others. It's more important that everyone have access to the knowledge and love of God in language everyone understands than that you go off and cultivate God's presence in a mysterious prayer language. Unless, of course, there is someone who can interpret what you are saying for the benefit of all. Think, friends. If I come to you and all I do is pray privately to God in a way that only he can understand, what are you going to get out of that? If I don't address you plainly with some insight or truth or proclamation or teaching, what help am I to you? If musical instruments, flutes, say, or harps aren't played so that each note is distinct and in tune, how will anyone be able to catch the melody and enjoy the music? If the trumpet call can't be distinguished, will anyone show up for the battle? So if you speak in a way that no one can understand, what's the point of opening your mouth? There are many languages in the world, and they all mean something to someone. But if I don't understand the language, it's not going to do me much good. It's no different with you. Since you're so eager to participate in what God is doing, why don't you concentrate on doing what helps everyone in the church? So when you pray in your private prayer language, don't hoard the experience for yourself. Pray for the insight and ability to bring others into that intimacy. If I pray in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind lies fallow, and all that intelligence is wasted. So what's the solution? The answer is simple enough. Do both. I should be spiritually free and expressive as I pray, but I should also be thoughtful and mindful as I pray. I should sing with my spirit and sing with my mind. If you give a blessing using your private prayer language, which no one else understands, how can some outsider who has just shown up and has no idea what's going on know when to say amen? Your blessing might be beautiful, but you have very effectively cut that person out of it. I'm grateful to God for the gift of praying in tongues that he gives us for praising him, which leads to wonderful intimacies we enjoy with him. I enter into this as much or more than any of you, but when I'm in church assembled for worship, I'd rather say five words that everyone can understand and learn from them than say 10,000 that sounds like gibberish to others. To be perfectly Frank, I'm getting exasperated with your infantile thinking. How long before you grow up and use your head, your adult head? It's, it's all right to have a childlike unfamiliarity with evil. A simple no is all that's needed there. But there's far more to saying yes to something. Only mature and well-exercised intelligence can save you from falling into gullibility. It's written in scripture that God said, In strange tongues and from the mouth of strangers I will preach to this people but they'll neither listen nor believe. So where does it get you all this speaking in tongues no one understands? It doesn't help believers, and it only gives unbelievers something to gawk at. 
Plain truth speaking, on the other hand, goes straight to the heart of believers and doesn't get in the way of unbelievers. If you come together as a congregation and some unbelieving outsiders walk in on you and you're all praying in tongues unintelligible to each other and to them, won't they assume you've taken leave of your senses and get out of there as fast as they can? But if some unbelieving outsiders walk in on a service where people are speaking out God's truth, the plain words will bring them up against the truth and probe their hearts. Before you know it, they're going to be on their faces before God, recognizing that God is among you. So here's what I want you to do. When you gather for worship, each one of you be prepared with something that will be useful for all. Sing a hymn, teach a lesson, tell a story, lead a prayer, provide an insight. If prayers are offered in tongues, two or three is the limit. And then only if someone is present who can interpret what you're saying. Otherwise, keep it between God and yourself. And no more than two or three speakers at a meeting, with the rest of you listening and taking it to heart. Take your turn. No one person taking it over. Then each speaker gets a chance to say something special from God. And you can all learn from each other. If you choose to speak, you're also responsible for how and when you speak. When we worship the right way... God doesn't stir us up into confusion. He brings us into harmony. This goes for all the churches, no exceptions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, after Easter, we began a study in the Gospel of Matthew, which I uh, believe we'll return to next Sunday. I'm looking forward to that. And when we got to chapter 3 and Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, we came across an interesting phrase where John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And... Uh, I just felt like we were supposed to take a little detour and think together this summer about this idea of baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we've been doing. And I believe that uh, uh, we're at a place of wrapping that up tonight and going back to uh, Matthew next week. Now, we've, we've seen that there are two spiritual gifts associated with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, especially in the book of Acts. One of them is a gift of prophecy. Joel predicted that when the Spirit baptized the church, the gift of prophecy would be uh, spread out among the body. And so we, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the, the gift of prophecy. The other spiritual gift that's associated with uh, spirit baptism in the book of Acts is the gift of spiritual language or the gift of, of praying in tongues, as it's often known. And we saw that on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit comes out, and everyone prays in a spiritual language. Then in Acts 10, we see it with Cornelius. The Spirit is poured out, and they pray in a spiritual language. We see it in Acts 19 with the Ephesians. The Spirit's poured out, and they pray in a spiritual language. And what I, I thought we ought to do before we wrap this up is just address this question of what is spiritual language and how does it work in the local congregation? Now, one of the things that we've been trying to do in this series is say, you know, this is a secondary issue. Uh, this is not part of the creed. This is not part of the core. This is not essential to salvation. And so 
Good Christians see this in different ways. Uh, I've tried to take some time to, uh, uh, to identify with you the different traditions and the different ways spirit baptism's been, been understood. And the same thing is true with prayer language. Uh, of course, one way you, Christians interpret prayer language is that it was one of those gifts that ceased at, at the death of the, the apostles and that it's no longer for the church today. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at all the reasons for, for that way of reading Scripture. So that's one way Christians uh, understand a gift like spiritual language. But uh, for others who believe that the gifts of the Spirit, the charismatic gifts of the Spirit, are still given today, that leaves us with a bit of a challenge. Um, what do we do with this idea of spiritual language? And, and I honestly... Um, have always struggled teaching on, on this question. And uh, over, I guess, 27 years of, of preaching, have not preached on it very much. Um, I don't know if we've really had a whole sermon on it in the past 10 years here, and I doubt we'll have a sermon on it in the next 10 years. <laughs> um, but it is there, and it is part of this idea of life in the Spirit. And I was thinking, why is this so hard? Why... I felt considerable anxiety even preparing to talk tonight about this. And I noticed there's all sorts of visitors here, which is deeply disturbing. <laughs> so come back next week. <laughs> and this is not what we normally talk about. But I thought, on the one hand, this is a hard subject because of the tension in the scriptures over it. Uh, on the one hand, Paul will say things like, everybody doesn't speak in tongues, do they? In chapter 12. And then in chapter 14, he comes along and says, I wish you'd all speak in tongues. And so there's these odd tensions in there. And I, I firmly believe, and, and now I'm giving you my interpretation, uh, and this is my understanding, you're free to disagree with me, this is not essential doctrine, But my understanding from chapter 12 of Corinthians is that the whole point of chapter 12 with that that picture of the body of Christ and the hands and the feet and the eyes and the noses is that there's all sorts of different gifts in the body. None of us have all of them. And so uh, we should expect there to be diversity. And we shouldn't be jealous when when somebody can teach and somebody can administer and somebody can, can lead and we have another gift. Now... The problem, though, with the gift of spiritual language is, is that's fair enough, but then Paul seems to put some sort of emphasis on seeking it in chapter 14. And, and one of the reasons why I've always struggled to figure out how to preach it is because if you believe, as, as I do, that this is not a gift that everyone gets, and then you spend a whole sermon talking about how wonderful it is, that just seems sort of cheap. Um, or mean. And I think I was thinking, you know, Jesse has this beautiful singing gift. Jesse is always singing. It's a big part of his spirituality. If, if you come to the office, you know, I'll hear the songs wafting up over the copier or, you know, out of the bathroom or over the coffee pot. You know, it, it's just this delightful gift that he has, and it blesses everyone. It's a deep part of his spirituality. And if Jesse gave a sermon on the gift of singing, and how wonderful it is, and how much it connects him with God, what am I going to do out there when you know, I'd be arrested if I sang out loud too much? Uh, it's not my gift. So I do worry about that. 
And, and I, from the onset, what I, what I, want, I want to just stress that what I'm going to talk about tonight is coming out of my own journey and my own understanding of Scripture. Uh, and I in no way uh, want anyone who does not interpret the Scripture this way or does not even desire to pursue a gift like spiritual language to feel judged or pressured or pushed in, in any manner. I just plead with you. I really don't, don't want anybody to feel, to feel that way. Um, but on the other hand... Sometimes I've, I've felt like a medical school professor teaching students about sex uh, in, in this kind of a topic, in that I, uh, I was looking at my notes earlier today, and I thought, this, you've just made this so dry uh, on purpose because you don't want to offend anybody. So I'm going to try to walk a, a tightrope tonight, which I've probably already fallen off of, um, and talk a little bit about my own experience with these things, but hopefully give you freedom um, to experience God in your own way. So, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is uh, where Paul addresses this question of spiritual language in the church. And in chapter 12, he argues for diversity. He says that gifts like tongues are just one of many gifts. They're all for building up the body. Then in chapter 13, he says that the thing that uh, is most important is that whatever gifts we have, they lead towards love. And then in 14, he gives specific instruction about tongues and prophecy. And since two weeks ago I talked to you about uh, prophecy, I'm going to talk more about prayer language tonight. Now, what is spiritual language? Um, Well, the Greek word Paul uses is glossa. You might have heard of the term glossolalia. That's the technical term for this. Uh, It just means language. Now, a hundred years ago, if you went to any university and you went to the Department of Foreign Languages, it probably would have been called the Department of uh, Foreign Tongues. Because 100, 150 years ago, uh, that was how you interpreted, that's how you spoke of a language, was tongue. And so... There's a problem in the way that we've interpreted a lot of uh, the New Testament teaching on this because we've used uh, archaic language. Um, uh, we've used, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, we've, used, we've used an old word that really means language. And so um, what we've got here is, uh, is Paul talking about a spiritual language. That's what the word glossa means. Now, here's a few of Paul's observations about spiritual language from 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. If you praise him in the private prayer language of tongues, you are sharing intimacies just between you and him. The one who prays using a private prayer language certainly gets a lot out of it. I'm grateful to God for the gift of praying in tongues that he gives us for praising him, which leads us to wonderful intimacies we enjoy with him. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Not all speak in tongues, do they? So the gift of spiritual language is the ability to pray in a language that you don't understand that helps you draw near to God. Um, it's, it's a language uh, that, that's not like a, that's not English. It's something that comes out of kind of your, your soul, your spirit, 
and it, it helps you draw closer to God. Um, now, Paul describes his own practice of praying in tongues when he says, If I pray in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind lies fallow. I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. And so Paul's talking about two different kinds of interpretation, or two rather, two different kinds of uh, prayer here. He talks about praying with his mind, and he talks about praying with his spirit. Um, praying with his mind is, I think, the way most of us normally pray. It's, it's the way that, that I normally pray. It's, uh, it's I think through what I'm about to pray. It's I might reflect on a scripture. I might have a prayer list. And I talk to the Lord about what I, what I need and what I want. Prayer in the Spirit is a different kind of prayer. Paul, Paul said it leaves his mind fallow. In other words, it doesn't engage his rational mind. It doesn't engage his thinking processes. It is prayer that sort of goes in and around the, the rational mind. It may be something like what he describes in Romans 8.26. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So prayer language is different than mental prayer. Prayer language is prayer that comes uh, out of our souls, out of our spirits, and kind of bypasses the rational mind. Now, we often talk about the Christian life as a kind of one-story house, uh, with the idea that in the first floor... Uh, it represents our conscious mind. That's, that's where we think and believe and reason and have conversations and make decisions. But there's also a, a basement in the house. And that is where our wounds and our dreams and our longing and our subconscious desires all are. And, and, and I think where prayer language fits in is prayer language is basement prayer. Uh, prayer language is prayer that, that surfaces some of the deeper longings of the heart. Prayer language connects us with emotions uh, and feelings and desires uh, that are kind of sub-rational. They're things that happen in the basement. Now, Paul also talks about the gift of interpretation. He says that spiritual language can also function in a communal way. Um, He says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit gives us Uh, the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues. He says in chapter 14 that anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And then when he describes one of the Corinthian worship services, he says, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So, when prayer language is interpreted, it functions like prophecy. Uh, we talked about prophecy two weeks ago. We defined it as, as uh, sharing something God has spontaneously and supernaturally brought to mind in order to build up another. And so when spiritual language is interpreted, it functions in that way. It functions as a, a word Uh, From the Spirit to the community. Now, uh, the Greek word for interpretation means explain, not translate. And one of the challenges here is, Paul doesn't give a handbook 
about how this works and what it means. And so you kind of have to read the scripture and then practice and see, see what you learn. In my own experience, interpreting uh, spiritual language is not like uh, going to French class and, and reciting something line by line. It, it's more explaining the sense or the meaning of, of a word. And what will happen is the person will pray and then one or two or three people may have an aspect of the interpretation. A lot of times it's a scripture. A lot of times it's a, it's a, it's a word of encouragement. A lot of times it's an image. And they all kind of come together as a collage as the community puts them together. Um, a few months ago, I was in a prayer meeting. And uh, someone prayed in tongues. And there was interpretation. And I, I wrote it down. And... This is just an example of how I've experienced it. I won't read some of the more personal things because it had to do with some of the people in the room. Uh, here was one phrase, Do not despise small things. God often starts as a wisp of a cloud over the mountain. Uh, another interpretation was, Death is not the end. There are things worse than death to fear. Another one was, Open my wells. The wells of my people are clogged up. Another one was, young one, step forward, the mantle is being passed to you. Then another was, if you ask me for a fish, I won't give you a stone. So those are just some of the things that came during that prayer. And that that little particular group of people that I walk with have been kind of processing and discerning and weighing and trying to see what the Lord had to say about this. And this is where, um, just in my own experience, I know there are many ways to experience God. And I I know some people, the the height of their experience with God is on a mountain trail or at the Eucharist uh, or in the middle of a great sermon or or lots of different ways. Uh, I would say, looking back over my journey, one of the places in which I've tasted the Lord uh, the most deeply is when someone has prayed and there's been an interpretation. Uh, it's, it's just been very comforting to me to think that the Lord might care enough and be close enough to speak into uh, my life and the, the life of the community I love like that. And I was talking with uh, my good brother Michael Wood. We were talking about this earlier today, and he brought me something tonight. This is a a bulletin from Fellowship Church, January 24th, 1999. And uh, he reminded me uh, about a night after service. In those days, we had four services, and the fourth one, it was in the little, little sanctuary over there. And, and uh, uh, his wife uh, had, had a message in tongues, and God gave me the ability to interpret it. And uh, I wrote the interpretation uh, all over this bulletin. And uh, it's very personal, and so I won't, I won't read it to you. But uh, Michael and I both were very touched today as, as, as he read it aloud to me again and uh, looked back over 15 years about how the Lord seemed to be preparing him for uh, some very significant things, including the death of his mother and other challenges that he would face. And so it's just very comforting to me uh, that God might work that way. And I, I was noticing, too, earlier when, I, when Michael handed me the bulletin, that the night at which this word came was uh, when I was preaching on John 14. The title of the sermon was Intimacy with Christ, the Holy Spirit, and 
and intimacy. And for me, and again, I know there's lots of ways to experience intimacy with Christ. That's a message I hope you hear tonight. Lots of different ways. For me, my prayer language is probably the sweetest way that I, I can connect with, uh, with God's heart. Um, I have a hard time getting out of my mind. Uh, I love to think. And sometimes I fancy myself as rather good at it. Uh, but getting out of my head and, and encountering the Lord... Uh, he, he, he had to give a knucklehead like me the gift of tongues to do that because <laughs> I just couldn't do it myself. I, I was uh, in a counseling session once years ago and um, the counselor was kind of a spiritual director. He was very sensitive to things of the spirit and, and, and he said, um, here's the image that I have for you, Doug. He said, you love to live in the library and I, I think the Lord wants you to go into the bedroom. And I've thought about that um, uh, for the past uh, 15, 20 years, because I love the library. <laughs> I, just, I just love a good library. I love the bedroom, too, but I mean, with the Lord, uh, with, well, no, we'll not go there, but we'll, uh, <laughs> the, the idea of that, kind, why on earth did I say that? There, there, forgive me, that, that had nothing to do with the sermon tonight, forgive me. I'm nervous, as you can tell, but what, what I'm trying to say is as that the kind of intimacy with Jesus that you read about in Song of Solomon and that different Christians talk about, it's just not easy for me. I'm big on obedience, I'm big on knowing, I'm big on doing the right thing, but, but that kind of tender intimacy... Uh, that belovedness. Remember we talked about that at the beginning of the baptism, the idea that the Father's voice comes out of heaven and he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Isn't that what you want? God, that's what I want. You know, um, yesterday I was, or Friday, Thursday I was over at swim practice at the pool and, and we've got this wonderful coach and he's got this uh, British accent and we were doing this really difficult set and I was struggling and I was starting to die and not die but you know that's what swimmers call slowing down badly and and he got in my face and he said Doug you can do this and it just flooded my soul with with hope and purpose and and joy that uh, this little guy with a British accident would accent would get down on my face and tell me he believed in me and, and for me, that's where this gift has helped me. It's kind of like a coach coming along and telling me that he believes in me. All right. Um, well, Paul ends by talking about guidelines for using spiritual language in a, in a prayer group. And again, we're not really covering all this passage tonight. He's very concerned to correct the abuse of the gift in Corinth. And so from verses 6 to 25, it gives all these reasons why it's important that what you do in public worship be intelligible. But then he goes on to give some practical guidelines. It's pretty simple. He says, if prayers are offered in tongues, two or three is the limit, and then only if someone is present who can interpret what you're saying. Otherwise, keep it between God and yourself. That's pretty straightforward. 
And then he kind of connects that with prophecy, and he says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Well, I think it's pretty simple. He's talking about a small group of believers together in prayer, and several of them have a word in tongues, and the rest of the community discerns a message. They weigh it. They see if it has any profit to them, and if it doesn't, they just, they just go on. I think that's how it's supposed to function. Um, now, let me close with, with just a few pastoral thoughts. Um, first, a word for those of us who uh, believe that the gift of spiritual language is not given to the church today. There's a lot of people in the body of Christ that believe that. There's a number of you that believe that. There, I understand. There's a good, good reasons for believing that. And if your study of Scripture has led you to believe that this gift is uh, not given to you to the church today, you should not practice it under any circumstance. Uh, how you understand the gift of tongues is a secondary issue. It's a disputable matter. It's not a core belief. And what Paul teaches in Romans 14 is that in disputable matters upon which good Christians reasonably disagree, we don't judge one another, but our own conscience is bound to Scripture. That's very important. Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. He says, look, in these disputable areas, you will give an account to God. And so if in your conscience you do not believe that this is right, um, you, you shouldn't pursue it. And if, you're, if your people are starting to and they ask, would you like to pursue this with me? You need to say, I don't have the liberty scripturally to pursue this, and I'd prefer that, that we not. But what if you've come to the conclusion that the Spirit may indeed give the gift of spiritual language today? Well, first, I don't think anybody should feel pressure to seek this gift. Uh, We all have different gifts. What I would encourage you to pay attention to is, as we've been talking tonight, what's gone on in you? Uh, For some of you, it's probably like if Jesse were giving a sermon on singing. Uh, I would probably appreciate that. I'd probably think of my my daughter who has a gift of uh, singing. I'd kind of file it away. And if that's where you are tonight as we're talking about this, it's kind of a, huh, okay. Then I, I would say, don't pursue this gift. Pay attention to what is alive in you. Pay attention to what the Spirit is doing in you and follow that. But, if, as you're listening tonight, something is, is kind of awakening a little bit in you, if there's a desire, um, maybe even a fear, a lot of times fear and anxiety covers up a desire, but if there's something kind of stirring in you tonight, then I think you should pay attention to that, and you should start talking to your people about it. And I, I think if that's happening to you, you need to, to take a step. You need to seek. Uh, Now, why do I say that? Well, in my experience, um, this gift doesn't usually come to you, you know, when you're at the bank. 
you know, you're standing there and you're saying, you know, I like uh, 50s and 5s and then some go, whoa! <laughs> no, that's not, that's not my experience of uh, how this, this happens. Uh, normally, I did hear someone, no, I won't go there. Um, but normally, this gift is given in the context of a trusting, praying community. And that's where we practice it at All Souls. We don't... We're too big here. We don't know everyone. We're all in different places. This is not the place to practice it. But it happens more in, a, in an intimate community of friends. And so if, if something's stirring in you, I think you, you might do something like this. You'd get with your people, and you might say, Hey, um, I've, I've been thinking about this. I've been studying Scripture. What do you say we get together for a night and, and study 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and pray and just see what God does? Or maybe, what do you, what do you think, uh, for a couple months, we just dig into that scripture and just kind of see what God does? When Sandy and I first started to awaken to these things, um, we found a couple, a, a close friend, and we said, would you get together on Sunday nights? We, we don't know really what to do with this. It kind of scares us. Of course, I was pastor of a church at the time. Um, and didn't want to blow it up. It's, I find that's good, usually, for job security, not to blow up your church. So um, I said, uh, I don't want to blow up the church, but something's going on in me. I'd like to explore this. Why don't we get together? And so for about a year, on Sunday nights, we would start after the kids were down. Our kids were little then. And uh, we would start praying about 9.30 or 10 and reading Scripture and just studying and exploring this. And sometimes we weren't done until 2 or 3 in the morning. It was one of the most exhausting seasons of my spiritual life but it was also one of the richest. So I would encourage you, if something is awakening you around this gift, to get with your people and pursue it. And if, 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 if this has just been a, a good informational uh, night and nothing is awakening, I would say pursue what is. Let's pray.